I've got a couple of my videos, the original ones where I just did using my mic from my Apple phone. And I'm like, oh, I got to redo that. I got to get back because it bugs the crud out of me every time I listen to it. I've got like two out of those videos that have a really bad sound. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and the content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Todd Fredericks, uh, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And I am right now located in the deep dark bowels of the University of Utah, actually uh, next to their anatomy lab. And I'm not going to tell you where it is because I think it's a secret location. I don't think we're allowed <laughs> to talk about that. But um, I have the distinct pleasure today of speaking with someone who is a faculty member on many universities and their deans don't even know it. In fact, he's actually coming at zero overhead. Um, his name is David Morton. He's a PhD, master of science, an anatomist who has an interesting little YouTube thing called The Noted Anatomist. And it's interesting because he has over 100,000 subscribers. And the reason why I think it's important that um, people like deans of medical schools know uh, about David is because he is teaching your students. And he, he is, and uh, and your students are learning from his content, and it is brilliant, and it's lovely, and it's beautifully done. Uh, Dr. Morton has also got the distinction of being a recognized Utah educator, actually a recognized national educator. He has won awards for this. He has an excellent presentation. If you go on and look at his um, at his content and what people think about it, you will see nothing but glowing reviews about a person who's a dedicated educator. And, uh, and someone who really loves the field that he is involved in, which is anatomy. And so we're going to do this interview. I have to tell you, as a listener, uh, I ask, I beg your, your forgiveness for the fact that the audio is probably a little off. We're doing it as a field interview. I actually am in the bunker at the University of Utah. <laughs> the anatomist has no, the noted anatomist no has not a single windows. window, but he does have some tchotchkes and he has some great textbooks and he has a, a, a refrigerator that's not got any kind of Diet Coke in it, but he's, he offered a Fresca, which was pretty nice. And so with that, I'll introduce uh, David A. Morton, PhD of the University of Utah. Thank you, Todd. Yeah. It's a pleasure. I, I, no, it's my pleasure because I had a chance to ride a train today. I had a chance <laughs> to come to your office and be at, at the U. I had, and I get Mongolian Grill later this evening. Yes, you do. You told me. I am totally stoked about that. Perfect day. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you tell me as I make unnecessary noises so I have a, a clock because people know that I never do an episode. I try not to make them any longer than 30 minutes because heaven <laughs> knows that's the that's Generation X's attention span. Um, I'm going to put the timer on, and then why don't you get started by telling us about you? What, give us your background. What, what did, I know you're not a Utahan. I'm not. I'm, I, so I'm, uh, I'm Canadian originally. I'm from a little town called Shelburne, Ontario, and it's about an hour and a half north of Toronto. And uh, my mom and dad, my, my mom's an immigrant to Canada. She came to, from Italy uh, a few years after World War II, learned English over 10 years, met my dad. They got married. They're in the city, and they decided we need to get out of the city and raise our kids in the country. So we went to this little town called Shelburne when I was not even a year old, 
and we lived in a farming community and we're the only place that didn't have animals. And my dad joked and said that we're a different type of farm, we're raising children. And so there was five of us, my three other brothers and my sister and I, the five of us total, and loved it. And then uh, I went to the local high school, Shelburne High School, and took every science class they had where my brothers and my sister didn't really have any interest in the sciences. I took every single science class they had, including anatomy, which I got a C minus in. And I wish I could see Miss Ritchie and tell her I got better. But, uh, and then, um, uh, yeah, I went away for a couple of years on a religious mission, came back, and then came down to Utah to go to school thinking I'd go back to Canada to go to med school. And ended up doing a master's and then a PhD here at the University of Utah, and then I got hired. That's an awesome story. It was like about 47 years right there. 47? <laughs> yeah. Um, I it 47 years in like... So it's been how long since you're in Toronto? Um, I moved the last where I finally uh, stopped living there is really when I got married when I was 22. Okay. So it's been 25 years. So I would be remiss if I didn't offer my condolences for great Toronto Neil Peart, who recently I know, died from Rush. I know. And I don't know how you fall on that, David, but I mean, I was I, a I was fantastic. a fusion percussionist in college, and I were you really? I am, and of course, Neil Peart is just he's the professor. So yeah, so they they were Rush was was and is brilliant. And in Toronto, there's a lot of people who are like, hey, we claim that, like, just like all the comedians from Second City and uh, Mike Myers and uh, Bare Naked Ladies and, of course, Rush. And, of course, Mike Myers is, is a genius comedian. Yes. But I have to tell you, as an Ohioan, Rush became famous because of Cleveland, because it was the Cleveland radio stations that started playing their music. So there's a great connection there. But you have chosen to come to the promised land of Utah, which has, and I just have to tell you, if you people have never been to Utah, um, it is a remarkably beautiful state. And the Utah Valley, uh, which is, is very long, there's a lot of cities, Ogden, clear down to Provo, mm -hmm. uh, it is just a wonderful place to visit. And you just have to see it for its just incredible beauty, the mountains, et cetera. And University of Utah sits in these foothills right up outside Salt Lake City and right behind Dr. Morton's office are beautiful mountains. So that's cool. Well, tell us about the University of Utah. It's called the U, right? Yes. The U. Just, it, it's called the U, so that the, the two big, uh, there's a lot of great universities in the state of Utah. The two that a lot of people hear about is Brigham Young University down in Provo and the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. It's just about an hour apart, and they call Brigham Young University the Y, and University of Utah the U. And they're the two schools that have the rivalry for football and the whole bit. And I'm an alumnus of both. Brigham Young University, where I did my bachelor's, and then the University of Utah, where I did my master's and PhD. Do you feel torn? Uh, no, I love both schools. They're fantastic. <laughs> but I live in Utah Valley. I live actually a little bit closer to BYU than the U of U, just where our house is. And um, all my neighbors give me crap for being up at the U now. So I'm when it comes to all the sports, I'm a Ute. Because <laughs> I know they go back and forth. Yeah, they do. Uh, and and the, the people in Provo give, give flack to people who go to the U. And vice versa. Oh, and so, yeah, and, and most of it's all just kidding and ribbing. I love both schools. Both are fantastic. So. Yeah. And the U, uh, their medical school here is fantastic. We have about 125 students in each of the classes from years one through four. And um, great school. And you have appointments in like three different departments here, right? So, yeah, I'm adjunct in the so, uh, Department of Family Preventive Medicine because of the work I do in Ghana. 
So DFPM, Department of Family Preventive Medicine, has family medicine, occupational medicine, and then public health. And so through a lot of the faculty in public health and the work I've done in different med schools in Ghana, and then physical and occupational therapy through the College of Health, because we share the same laboratory facilities, um, their anatomist, Bo Foreman and I, do a lot of teaching together and done research together and collaboration together as well. So Now, I suppose it goes without saying, but correct me if I'm wrong, you feel like the environment at the U is pretty collegiate? It's wonderful. It's fantastic. A great place for an academic to be. Oh, heavens, yes. The, what, what, I, what I kind of imagined higher education would be, where you have faculty from different backgrounds being able to do work together, and it's exactly what it's like here. Like, uh, every... I, I can say this, really, every professor I've ever approached to say, hey, there's a project, either educational or research or service project that we would do, has always been like, yeah, let's see if we can make this work. And even if after trying it didn't work out, everyone's very uh, open for doing collaborations. So Yeah, I, I, I love hearing that story because I am a product of The Ohio University in the medical school, and I always felt like they took a big risk on me, letting a, a wacko like me become a, a physician. And so I have a great deal of uh, loyalty to The Ohio University, which is not the wacko school in the flatlands of Ohio in the center. It's the oldest school in the Western United States. And so I, I love hearing stories about academics that have a lot of loyalty to their university and love being there. It's, 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 it's affirming and it makes a better yeah. educator, right? Oh, it is. Yes, very much so. Well, okay. So you touched briefly because you've got the chops, although you got the same great anatomy that I did. You, 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 you got the chops to go to medical school. But you decided to become an academic. Why? I mean, th that's a big decision to make. So, um, it's, it's, so this one, the short answer to that is I got accepted to a master's program here and at Dayton, Ohio and in San Antonio, Texas. The right state? Degree, right state, yes, yeah. um, to do a master's degree. And as a backup, when I was applying to medical school, because I was an international student, um, I had to make sure I was in school or I'd be out of status. Oh, yeah. And so... Oh, yeah. um, when I got accepted to medical school, it was to the DO school in uh, Health Sciences campus in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, it was where I would have gone. And, uh, and it was between that and then I came down to, because of scholarship to the University of Utah, the master's degree and back and forth. Part of it was uh, finances because I would have had to take out private loans being an, uh, an international student. And having already, my wife Celine and I already had two children in, that time, let me see here, two children at that time, and it would have been so expensive to take out loans. That was one of them. The other reason is I just had one of those life-affirming moments where I could see that I, I had that one of those moments where I looked and said, I think I'm supposed to go into academics. I think teaching is where I should be. And it was one of those moments that I look back now and I'm like, it really was one of those moments that I read about as a kid. That some people have where they're like, I think that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's what we did. And so my wife and I said, yep, let's do it. We jumped in feet first into academics. So what an awesome story. So so I have 
I have this question. At what point, I mean, we could talk about anatomy, but every, every medical school has anatomists. I mean, there, there's anatomists. Anatomy, you, could, you can't swing a cat without hitting an anatomist around a medical <laughs> school, right? As we like to say in the Midwest, you can't swing, well, at least in Appalachia. I, I heard that. I came from California when I got involved with my wife and her family. <laughs> they had that saying, you can't swing a cat. I said, there are a lot of cats. Oh, people swinging cats, cats around. <laughs> but, so there's anatomists everywhere, but at what point, so we need to talk about the noted anatomist. So at what point did you begin to see the importance of technology and education, specifically using video, the stuff that you do? And by the way, this will all be in the show notes. So if you want references, I will put them all in so you can see just what David's doing. It's really great stuff. So I got involved with it because I had a moment early. I finished my PhD in 2003. So those few years... Like even in graduate school, I'd say in 2002, then when I finished in 2003 and four and five, when I was hired and I was directing the anatomy program, I felt this huge, I was unsatisfied with what I was doing. I felt like my, I've seen geography teachers do this where they put up a picture. And in my case, it was in Canada. And they'd say, these are the Great Lakes. And this is Lake Ontario. And this is Lake Superior. And this is Lake Michigan. And this is Lake Erie. And they're pointing. And I remember looking even on these transparencies saying, I have that same picture. And you're just pointing to the picture and saying what I'm seeing on my picture. There isn't anything value added. So one of the teaching principles I started looking at for me was, what am I doing that a medical student could not do in half the time on their own in the library? That became a big principle for me because I would sit there and say, this is the kidney and this is the adrenal gland and this is the adrenal medulla and this is the adrenal cortex and this is the suprarenal artery. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not adding any value. And I thought, this isn't, students aren't gleaning what they should feel about what's important here. So I thought, well, if I want to really talk about the clinical stuff, I want to talk about the application, which is what these students are really hoping to do then they need to do something ahead of time. So when I started doing these original videos, there was very little content available like there is today on YouTube. So I thought I just have to create my own videos and then have the students watch them ahead of time. And if the students watch them ahead of time, then I could say, before you come to class, I need you to watch this video on the heart, chambers, valves, and vessels, and coronary circulation. Then when you come to class, we're gonna work on problem sets. And so the whole, and so I had made all these videos and then it just got really awkward to use learning management systems like Blackboard or Canvas. Mm -hmm. So I started putting them on Dropbox until I realized if I put them on YouTube, students can stream them anywhere. Mm -hmm. And YouTube will stream them to the quality if they have a low uh, internet connection or a high internet connections for speed, it'll stream quality this way. And plus they could do it in my mind, I'm like, they could do it from their kitchen in their pajamas eating Cheerios at midnight, or they could do them while sitting on the toilet. Literally, this is what I, and not that I imagine students sitting on the toilet. That sounded creepier oh, sure than I meant to. So, but, but yes, but, but I wanted it so that they could, if they're like, hey, I got a few minutes, that within one or two clicks, they were able to see the content and be able to look at, and look at them so that instead of class being a time of delivering content and students consuming it, it became a time that students used to apply the content. They're learning the vocabulary ahead of time, videos. In class though, they're applying it like speaking the language and now having to speak the language. And that's how, and the noted anatomist just came around because 
It was the convenient way of uploading videos. It was very convenient for everyone. Was that a technically challenging thing for you as an educator? You know what you want to do, but then getting into YouTube, figuring all that out about how you want to approach that that methodology? That, that wasn't, uh, I thought, I, it was at first uh, spooky because I didn't know anything about it. And then I realized it really is a very easy thing to do. In fact, anyone who has a Gmail account already has a YouTube channel. Like, for I didn't know this. If you have a Gmail account, you actually have a YouTube channel. You just have to turn it on. And then you can upload content. So for me, I put the noted anatomist uh, because just so I could have my own personal stuff. And then this would be kind of like the professional part. And my wife and I like singing. And so she said, why don't you put a musical note on it? And that's how the noted anatomist got its name. Yeah, speaking of which, there's no guitar in here. Oh, <laughs> I sometimes have it in here and I didn't We do. We, we, I actually, in preparation, I asked you, would you I play the guitar? That, and, and you I, did not bring your guitar. I forgot to bring my guitar, Todd. I'm sorry. So the thing is, is that <laughs> David Morton plays guitar occasionally in his classes to, to uh, solidify learning. And I thought, well, that would be great. But I, <laughs> but I will be back out in Utah in a, in a, in a few months and whatever. <laughs> will do is I'll purposely come by and for the cost of lunch I'll have David play some music and then we can put it in his intro and outro music. Or I may something. have to pay you for lunch for that. <laughs> you like inflict my talent on you. So for the sake of framing the framing this discussion, is the U running the there's a medical school at the University of Utah. Is mm -hmm. there is it running on a pedagogical system or is it running flipped classroom? What is it running in terms of its educational model? We use uh, just like I think many schools You've got schools like the University of Vermont, Vermont School of Medicine that said, we are going to go team-based learning 100%, bam, across the board. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't done that uh, um, strong of a switch. I would say that for the preclinical curriculum, we are likely 50 to 60% active learning, either flipped classroom, team-based learning, something along those lines, small groups like case-based learning, something where the, the, the spotlight is not on the professor, the spotlight is on the students. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a other hybrid things, and I'd say we're probably still, as a curriculum, 30 to 40% lecture-based as the preclinical school of medicine. For me, I'm 100% either flipped classroom or team-based learning. So active learning, 100%. Yeah. I mean, this is the trend. And for people who are listening to this that aren't familiar with these terms, um, flipped classroom basically means that you don't have a traditional lecture hall. What you have is you have groups of, frequently groups of students. It doesn't have to be, but we it's a common model. OUHCOM is, OU, is built this way. You have groups of students, and those students groups are learning groups. Uh, professors are then challenged to put together content and develop activities in which the students do preparation. And we'll talk about mm -hmm. pre-records, the concept of that which Dr. Morton's already alluded to. But then ultimately what ends up happening is they come already prepared with a sizable amount of information. And then activities are designed to reinforce that information or help them to look at higher level um, synthesis concepts and try to take what they already know and discover new things on their own. Some people think it's uh, basically abandoning the student. If you're a traditional pedagogical instructor, which is I lecture at the front of the room, I answer questions, students are tested on what they were taught. Um, what flip classroom is not is not abandoning it. What it is is probably more challenging for educators because you have to make sure you have really relevant content appropriately appropriate to the level of learning of the student and then accelerate it once they've had a chance to really synthesize and push them. And there's a lot of people who are great advocates. Um, I, I will, I'll, I'll diverge for a minute because I was a product of pedagogical education. I mm -hmm. was a person who was um, very linear and I needed a matrix to put stuff in. I really needed someone to say, this is what you need to know. 
Um, you've been an educator for a long time, David. Do you encounter students that struggle with with education here because they're that way? They just give me what I need to know, give me a syllabus, show me the resources, I can take the test. I think that there's students from all areas in this spectrum that want to just be told, just tell me what I have to know. That's mm -hmm. it. Just tell me what I have to know. Other students who um, who really want to be involved in their education. And so one of my, so I don't have a perfect answer to that, Todd, but I, I go back to one of my teaching principles that over the years I try to go by, and that is save a student from themselves. Mm -hmm. And what I mean for me on this is if a student says, just tell me what I have to know. I, uh, just tell me. Not necessarily spoon feed, but listen, hey, you've got a lot of this mumbo jumbo, you're going thing, just tell me the stuff I have to know, I'm going to memorize it, i got to get back to studying for my boards. To save them from themselves is if an activity, educational activity, an active learning educational activity is constructed well, you will save that student so much time. There is this one paper, actually, I just, I can't remember where I have it. I think it's called Active Learning is Like Broccoli. That's the name of the paper. And why? Because people are like, I don't want to eat broccoli. Broccoli doesn't taste good. So instead, I'm going to eat a cookie. So the cookie tastes good. So if you were to say, what do you prefer, a cookie or broccoli? People are like, I want a cookie instead of broccoli. So active learning, when people say, hey, this is, this is too hard, what the, the data shows is students' retention in active learning is much greater than lecture. Students' understanding is much better in active learning when compared to lecture. Student satisfaction is better in lecture than in active learning. So what that means is students prefer cookies, but broccoli is better for them. Students prefer lectures, but active learning is better for them. So one of my principles is I save them from themselves, which is, is why do I have to do this pre-work? You're making me watch this video for 15 or 20 minutes and take notes. And then in class, these are hard questions, and I don't quite get them all the time, and it's tough. I'd rather you just one by one in clear cut put them because it's frustrating. They're squinting their eyes, and they're like, oh, struggling to get this. What the literature demonstrates, it is exactly the struggling and the squinting of the eyes and the, oh, challenging of trying to recall concepts and having to defend answers is what enables them to have a better retention and understanding of this information. So that is why that become one of my principles. So even if a student says, why don't you just lecture? And every year I get a handful of students out of 125 that say, why isn't Dr. Morton just lecture to us? But out of 125 students, I get well over 115 that say this is by far the best way to learn. I wish all of our classes did it this way. And I don't see that so much as a, hey, look at what me, what I'm doing. It's that the whole thing, med students come to school, not that they thought, I'm going to go to med school because I want to sit in class and listen for four hours or eight hours a day. They come because they want to be a doctor. And what do you do to be a doctor? You solve problems. That's what you do in medicine. And so. My goal is, I, I, I'm not a physician, so Todd, unlike you, so I, I don't see patients, I, I don't do this, but one thing we share in common is, we're problem solvers. That's what science and medicine is. And how do you get better at it? You practice it. Do you wanna get better at solving problems? Practice solving problems. Well, I would say something <laughs> in politic here, David, uh, that uh, it's not just saving students from themselves, it's saving faculty from themselves. Yeah, too. Because uh, as I put together content, my vacations in the last, we, we, we actually just are the finishing stages of the, of the first run through our curriculum, which went from completely, well, fairly pedagogical to flipped. Aye. Huge learning curve for faculty. 
But what's happened to me, again, I love the cookie versus broccoli thing, is I have had to eat a lot of broccoli and figuring out what Bloom's <laughs> taxonomy is, Aye. what all these concepts are, and push myself to create content and questions that do exactly what you're talking about. And it's not an easy thing for faculty. It is really challenging. But what it does do is I think it motivates you as an educator to say, yeah, I'm, I'm earning my keep. I, I, what I'm doing here is, you know, it's not, I never question, because I, I don't take tenure lightly. I mean, I, I think it was a great privilege to get it. And I know it is. I've known people who've not gotten it. And I'm like, am I really earning my keep here as an academic? And believe me, if you're doing the, your job <laughs> in a flipped classroom, the, the professor has not abandoned the class. In fact, if anything, the professor has gotten a truckload of broccoli and they are now cons they're eating it one bite at a time, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's so, that Hoping there's so a cookie at the bottom <laughs> of the bed of the truck. <laughs> Maybe right? or occasional <laughs> cookie. The cookie summer break. That's what the so, cookie is. So I, I, I concur with, Do with you? you. Oh, yeah, I concur with you on this. It's, yeah. Um, it, it, we, when some of our discussions, Todd and I have had, even just today, what, what is it that medical education offers? And it, there's certain things that'll never change in higher education. That is, you have professors that are there working with students. Together, they add to the body of knowledge, and together, they learn the body of knowledge. Mm. Before, it used to be the professor lecturing to students on that body of knowledge because that was the only way to do it. But the end goal was not just delivering the information. The end goal has always been, now what do we do with this information? Technology has enabled us that we can do so much more that I think it that there is always a place for a lecture, but it should be the garnish. It shouldn't be the main course. I think in higher education and an institution of higher learning, if we keep lecturing, we just make institutions of higher memorization as opposed to institutions of higher learning. And flipped classroom active learning tends towards the higher learning, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't... I. As a person who has been drug, drug, drug like a like a, a stubborn mule into this thing, I would agree. <laughs> I have to objectively say yes. I think at the end, I do worry a little bit that, uh, that from where we've come from, that our board scores may we may see a percentage point or two lower performance on the board board scores. I don't think it'll be dramatic, but I think it will be noticeable because it will be more challenging. But again, the product at the end is a more facile thinker within the context of medicine and practicing. So I'm going to end the first segment, but I think it's important to note you say, I'm a physician, and yes, I do treat patients, but you go to Ghana, and you, which I was surprised about because I read about your trip to Ghana, and I'm like, what's he doing in Ghana? He's an anatomist. What's he running around there for? So why don't you tell us about Ghana and how that's evolved and what you do in Ghana now? Because I think you do treat patients. Oh, I don't treat patients. If for nothing, if, if we can define patients as, say, faculty members in medical schools who need care because they're oh, overwhelmed, <laughs> or you may be a psychologist. Yes, you may, that's that's right. So tell funny. us about Ghana and how you got involved with Ghana. So when I decided to go into academics instead of medicine, my biggest regret is I'd always wanted to work in Africa when I became a physician. And when I finally decided I'm going to go into academics, I'm like, well, I guess that's it. That, I know, and, and I just didn't know needs and the whole bit. In my mind, I thought if you go to help in, in Africa, you have to be a doctor. I didn't recognize there's so many different ways that you could do things. And so early on, like in 2005, there was a group of professors from the University of Utah that went over to KNUST, um, uh, their medical school in Kumasi, right in the middle of Ghana. 
And I went over and I just went with them for two weeks and I didn't know anyone. I just went and walked around campus and met people, met their anatomist, Chrissy Abidou, and we became good friends and started going over and working and teaching with them. And then see like, hey, you've got all these brand new computers from the Gates Foundation. Are you using them? And they're like, well, we don't really, the students use them for emails, but our faculty don't know how to use them. So we brought over a bunch of tutorials that we use for histology and osteology and neuro. And then they started using them with their students. And then... Um, other med schools learned about this, so I started working with faculty and faculty development in Kumasi, in Tamale, which is in the northern region, a little bit in Accra, and then in Ho, which is uh, in the eastern region. And so those are the med schools that I, uh, that I work with their anatomists, and I go and I teach. We do collaborations together. A couple of their anatomists from Tamale came here last August. We did dissections for a couple of weeks, so they, could, uh, they don't do a lot of dissection in Ghana. And... Uh, a lot of good colleagues and friends now there. So, so what were some of the challenges? I mean, because I, I have been in many countries myself uh, that are certainly not as robust or as well-equipped as the United States. Um, there's, a, there's some great pictures of, of a computer lab that was essentially new. The Gates Foundation helped fund it. Um, what's it like in terms of the challenges of walking in as an American educator where we are so technocratic to a part of the world where they're training doctors and those people are going to take care of patients, mm -hmm. but really are not as resourced or integrated in terms of technology as we'd like to think we are. Cause I know there's some definite problems and challenges with technology integration, but, but yeah, you have, but, mm -hmm. but so what, what have you found as far as the, what you needed to do to sort of de-Americanize yourself and find a Ghana solution to importing technology into a medical school there. What, what are some of the things you came up with? We did, a, we did an IRB funded study when we first started going over. So Bo Foreman, who I mentioned from College of Health, Suzanne Stences, who is, who is now retired, but also in the department, the three of us went over and uh, we did a needs assessment, uh, just like we did with our students here. What is the technology students are using? Back in the day when not everyone brought a computer to school and we didn't have smartphones. And in 2007, we found that all but two of their first year med students had their own computer. Hmm. Not even just the computer, have had their own computer. Many of them were desktop computers, like literally like the big hard drive. So when we first started, and so we then presented this to their, to their school of medicine and said, they actually have a lot of computers. Maybe we can help you reduce this professor-student burden of small groups by letting them do works on, work on their own computers. And they said, this is a great idea. Let's do it. So students would lug their computers across campus. They actually hired a technologist, Charles Doncourt. The guy was amazing. And he was uh, uh, a student in, in informational sciences. And he started helping students install these software programs. And the challenge was more of just helping the faculty, not the students. It's the faculty. Uh, and we didn't even need to do any more needs assessments after that because how quickly in five years everyone not only had their own computer, they all had smartphones, all of them, like every single med student. Even though many of these med students didn't have a textbook, this is the thing I found interesting. I'd, be, I'd go and I'd be lecturing. I'd have students come with this shrink-wrapped, brand-new anatomy textbook and atlas and dissection guide, shrink-wrapped from Elsevier, and they'd place it, and they'd be sitting there waiting in the beginning of class, and then the students sitting beside them had a, a, a notebook, and that's all they'd have. Because of, there was such disparity before between in, even the students in Ghana and people from other surrounding like Cote d'Ivoire and, uh, and Nigeria that they would come to schools in, in Ghana. 
but um, they all had computers. So technology became the equalizing factor. So it then became helping work with faculty in working with technology uh, in the classroom. Yeah, this is a very compelling thing to me in that uh, standardizing medical care globally, that using technology to where uh, predictably, at least some point down the road, if not now, it's conceivable that at least one group of students in Ghana at least entering the third year of medicine will have a significant amount of preparation that is parallel to a bunch of students at the University of Utah. And, yeah. and the import to me in that is, is that means that we're going towards a more universalized standard of care. Mm -hmm. It's not quite there yet because we're talking about clinical issues too, but right. as far as the undergraduate preclinical pre right. type education in medical school, yeah, what is the problem? What is the problem with having a globalized understanding of concepts. I guess you can get into some nepotism. We can talk about that in the second segment in terms of those challenges and how that challenges us. But I think it's pretty amazing. And not only that, but helping to help those students have higher quality content at essentially no additional cost. And, the, and that's the thing that these, that the faculty and the students are, this is a global thing. It's a very global thing that they are extremely bright, mm -hmm. crazy bright the faculty and the students, often what they just lack are the resources. Yeah. And technology is a wonderful, it's not the perfect equalizer, but it's a wonderful equalizer of accessing quality content and accessing information, both on the faculty side, no different. Here what happens in medical school, someone says, hey, you finished your PhD in neuroscience and you studied retinal pathways in zebrafish, way to go, we need you to run this histology course. What? This is what happens everywhere, and not just in the United States and Ghana, too. The difference is in the United States, they're like, well, I can take courses online, and I got all this accesses, and only until the past decade in Ghana did they have faculty the opportunity. When they finished their bench research in Berlin, Germany, moved back to Ghana, and they're like, hey, you're now running the histology course or the anatomy course, and they're like, I'm not trained in that. Where do they get the information? So technology is a great equalizer. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end the first segment. You good for another segment? You bet. Okay, with that, I would like to end the segment, obviously. And uh, I'm going to thank Dr. David Morton, PhD, MS, at the U, the University of Utah. The Utes. Go Utes. Um, by the way, I would just say that uh, the best hockey team in the Valley are the Ogden Mustangs. I'm just going to say that. Uh, and uh, they, they played, they had a, a three-game. game? Oh, yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> they had a three-game three defeat over Colorado, and it was really fun to watch. And it's at the Ice Sheet, which is the uh, stadium built for the Olympics in Salt Lake. And it's a beautiful venue. And Weber State plays there, too. It's a lovely place. So with that, David, I'm going to end the segment. And uh, for those of you listening, we'll, we'll catch Dr. Morton on the second segment of Rotations. Thanks for joining us. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks, hosted by Todd Fredericks, and edited by Todd Fredericks. 
Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi, and at Rotations PCAST, or by visiting MediaInMedicine.com slash Rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media in Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sense of feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater.